It's More Money with leading economist Steve Moore. Stephen Moore is with us, economist. With more than 30 years' experience as an economist and as a leading thinker of government on business, showing deep understanding of the shifts in the global economy. He's leading economist Steve Moore with More Money on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Hello, folks. This is the More Money Show. I am your host, Stephen Moore. I am uh, with the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, a group that I started a number of years ago with Larry Kudlow and uh, Steve Forbes and Arthur Laffer and uh, a lot of really great economists. By the way, if you are not getting our Committee to Unleash Prosperity hotline every morning, Please sign up. It's free. I'm not selling you anything, folks. It is absolutely free. There's no advertising. It's just pure information about what's really going on with the economy, what's really going on in politics, uh, what's really going on with COVID. And as most of you know, so much of the information that you get from the mainstream media is uh, completely fallacious. So we try to cut through that and give you the real data, the real charts, the real information about the economy and uh, and so many of these important p- political policy decisions that uh, affect our lives. So to get that, just go to committee to unleash prosperity.com. That's committee to unleash prosperity.com and just send us your email and we will start sending you this for free five mornings a week. If you like it, we'll continue to send it to you. We want, you know, I've always said I have the smartest audience in the country and uh, so that's one of the reasons I love doing the show, because I love communicating with smart people. Uh, but if you want to be even smarter, get the hotline. It's got some really great material. We have a great team that follows all of these issues. And you can read it in five or six minutes. By the way, my buddy, uh, the great Newt Gingrich, uh, Speaker Gingrich, uh, emailed me the other day and said, Steve, this is such a great product. He said, it's the first thing I read every morning. So that's a pretty good endorsement. And I want you to get it to to, uh, get it to you as well. It's committee to unleash prosperity.com. Send us your email and we will um, get it out to you. It probably takes about three or four days to get you in the system. Join the hundred thousand people that now get the hotline and you will be the smartest person in the room. So a lot to talk about. By the way, I have some really exciting news. I've got goosebumps here because this is so cool. I've been negotiating with my good friend, John Katsimatidis, who is the owner of this station, WABC. And uh, we've been talking about expanding the More Money show to a two-hour show. And we finally came to an agreement that we both think is really good for uh, for all of us, for the station and for me. And um, so I'm excited about this. So we're going to go from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I think I'm not sure whether that's going to start next week or the week after, but that means more and more money, more uh, chance I have to talk with you. It means I'll have more great guests on. And you you know, I've always said that this is such a privilege for me to follow Larry Kudlow, who is one of my heroes. By the way, Larry has the top uh, TV show on business news in America, <coughs> excuse me, of any station, CNBC, Reuters, Bloomberg, Fox Business. He's number one. So it's always a thrill for me to, to be on his show uh, his radio show, his TV show, and also to follow him. So I'm, I'm feeling good about things. The world's moving in a good direction for me. And by the way, John Kessimatidis, who 
took over the station a few years ago has completely resurrected the station. We are now the number one talk radio station in America, and we have listeners all the way up to Maine and all the way down to Florida. I have a lot of listeners I know who call in from Chicago, call in from Arizona. And so it's just exciting for me. And I appreciate the people who are regular listeners to the show. And um, so thank you. Thank you for being making this show a success. So let's get right down to business. Um, incidentally, I spoke this morning. Some of you may have seen it. I was on C- uh, C-SPAN. And I spoke this morning at the CPAC conference, which, uh, has, um, several thousand people in the audience. By the way, Donald Trump is ta- speaking at CPAC this afternoon. So I, <laughs> I like to say I was his warm-up act. I was President Trump's warm-up act. That's pretty cool. But in any case, I spoke about, uh, the regulatory assault on America, which is one of my favorite topics. We talk a lot of, about that on this show. And I was, uh, I was mentioning the fact that one of the groups that is in favor of all these regulations is the AARP. That's the group that represents, supposedly represents, I'm using air quotes around that word because I don't think they represent them. I think they represent the, I think they represent the, um, insurance companies. I think they are a money making operation. Uh, and I don't think they really represent the interests of seniors and they certainly don't represent the interests of Look, every person I know, many of you are probably, I know that we have an audience, many of you are over the age of 65. By the way, I just turned 64, so I'm now eligible for Social Security. But look, one of the things you, when you get older, what you care most about is obviously your own health, but also what's going to happen to your kids and grandkids and the future of this country. And there's no organization that is doing more to ruin the future of our country than the ARP. They are against the most basic reforms in these entitlement programs. And as I said, I'll be soon eligible for Social Security and um, and Medicare. I paid a lot of money into it, folks. I know you did, too. I mean, every single damn paycheck I've made since the time I was 16 years old mowing lawns, I had to pay 12% of my paycheck into this black hole of social security and now they're going to pay me like a lousy $2,200 a month. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, individual accounts, turning it into a, like a 401k plan. If we had done that, I wouldn't be getting $2,200 a month. I'd be getting $22,000 a month. And so social security is just not a good system for workers. They get much, much, much more money uh, if it, the money was uh, invested in the stock market. My God, the S&P 500 25 years ago was at 500. Now it's at 5,000. So think about how much money you'd be getting. If you're someone collecting a Social Security check, you'd be getting way, way, way more money than um, than you get under this crappy system where they pay you this little amount of money. By the way, you'd also leave be able to leave your kids about a million dollars in an inheritance, but you don't do that under Social Security because you don't own the money. There's no lockbox, folks. I hope, remember that term by Al Gore, the lockbox? There's no lockbox. There's no account with your name on it. And And by the way, the reason you're not getting the return on your money that you should Let's say you're over the age of 65, maybe you're 70 years old, 75 years old, and you're listening to this show. What I, I think most of you know that the reason you can't get a good return on the money is what they've done is they've taken your Social Security dollars that you paid into that system for 40 years, and they've spent that money on other government programs. That's what they're doing. <laughs> they're taking your dollars that are supposed to be for a pension program and they're sending spending it on green energy programs and welfare programs and you know uh bridges to nowhere 
It's can you, by the way, can you imagine if you were the CEO of a, let's say a Fortune 500 company and you took the workers' uh, pension plans and you spent it on other things other than the pension? They would put you in jail. That's fraud. That's financial fraud. They'd put you in jail and they'd throw away the key. And yet that's what Congress does every year with the Social Security system. So I'm saying don't let them spend the money out of their programs. Let's put that money into personal accounts and let it, you know, let it accumulate in value over time. You know, it was Albert Einstein who said the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. And and we you don't get any compounding of the interest on Social Security because as soon as the money comes in, what do they do? They spend it on other programs. It is a Ponzi scheme. And it's going to collapse. And so we need to fix it. But get back to AARP. They don't want to fix it. They don't, they are against almost every single reform. All they want to do is tax the rich, tax the rich as if that's going to save a multi-trillion dollar uh, pension plan that has been mismanaged for, let's see, it was started in 1935 or so. So they've been doing this for 80 years. They've been stealing the money from the social security system. And now it's like Bernie Madoff, the whole thing is going to collapse. I'm for fixing it. They're not. And same thing with Medicare. What AARP is doing is they are a, a subsidiary of United Health. So they will do United Health is the one of the I don't know if they're the largest or the second largest health insurance company in America. They're not representing they're not representing seniors. They're representing the health insurance companies and that's why they went for these uh price controls on drugs in these so called Inflation Reduction Act. I don't know if you've seen reduction in your drug prices, but I haven't. And what they're doing there is basically putting in price controls. And that way you have less money for research and development to find cures for everything from multiple sclerosis to Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to cancer. Uh, all of these terrible diseases that we can solve. We can find cures to these diseases, but it costs a lot of money in terms of research and development. And instead they want price controls so that there's less money going into innovation. Uh, you know, I, if I sound angry about AARP, I, I, I am angry. And if you're a member of the AARP, I think you might want to reconsider it because they are not an organization that is representing your interests. And I will take your calls, by the way, later in the hour. And if you disagree with me on this, I'm happy to hear, you know, what you think AARP does for you because I don't, I don't see any benefit to that organization whatsoever. Uh, my, by the way, the more money hotline, and we'll be taking your calls at the second half of the hour. Just so, so jot this number down because I want to hear from you later. The, that more money hotline number 1-800-848-9222. Now I want to talk about a couple, by the way, I'm kind of proud of this. So I, I gave the speech at CPAC this morning, trashing ARP. And guess what? The Biden-Harris campaign is now going after me. And they're saying Trump, had, I'll quote from this uh, tweet that they sent out. It's, it's quote, Trump advisor Stephen Moore, the ARP is one of the most evil organizations in America. They've got to go. Yeah, they have to go because they're, they're stealing our money. Okay. Now I want to talk about something else. Talk about stealing other people's money. I, by the way, you know, I kind of, I'm going to miss Joe Biden in a way because as a radio talk show host, he gives me so much material. You cannot make this stuff up. You really can't. In fact, we have a, a feature in our uh, hotline, uh, the more money hotline that I was telling you about where we call it. You can't make this uh, XXXX up. And here's the latest one. 
And uh, this is something we talked about in the hotline. And now I see the Wall Street Journal has their lead editorial on this. It has to do with what is going on with the, quote, forgiveness of student loans. By the way, I love these terms that the uh, that the left uses forgiveness. Nobody's forgiven. It's just that you don't have to pay back the money if you're one of the people not, you know, deadbeats not paying your loan. The taxpayer has to pay for it. Uh, so they 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 always use these terms that sugarcoat what they're really doing. And so in any case, Biden has already uh, forgiven f- almost five million Americans their student loan debt. Five million Americans. What is he doing here? He's buying their votes. He's taking your and my money, giving it, essentially giving it to these people who aren't paying back their loans. And then who do you think those people are going to vote for, by the way? Do you think this is graft? Do you think this is just a way of paying off the young voters? Because Biden is doing really well with young voters because he's saying, oh, God, you don't have to pay back your student loan. We'll we'll make, uh, you know. Uh, the farmers pay it off and we'll make the businessmen pay it off and we'll make the workers pay it off. And so here's what he has done. Uh, he is, uh, let's see, over a, let's see, I'm just, I want to make sure I'm, he, okay, here's the number. $138 billion has been transferred from the people who took out the loans to taxpayers. $138 billion, not million, billion dollars. And it's headed to as much as $400 billion if he continues on this track. And every few weeks, he's saying, oh, this group doesn't have to pay back their student loans now. And it is outrageous. By the way, my lovely wife, Ann Moore, who went to UCLA, and um, when she graduated, she, you know, didn't have a high-paying job. She got a good job. But, you know, when you first graduate from college, you make maybe 30. This was back 25 years ago. But she was making you know, maybe $35,000, $40,000. But one thing that she did, uh, you know, she took, and she, so she was living paycheck to paycheck, like all of us do when we get out of high school or college. And she, but she very diligently set aside some money, a few hundred dollars from her paycheck to do what a responsible person does. She paid back that student loan. And, you know, uh, uh I don't know, it was about 10 years ago, she finally had paid it off. That's what an upstanding citizen does. She should, you know, she doesn't need a gold medal for doing her duty. But maybe she should get a medal because you've got millions of people who are not paying back their loans, and now the government's going to bail them out. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. That's called a moral hazard problem. Biden says, well, we're only bailing out the the loans where people can't repay them. Well, get a job. (laughs) Make more income. Work harder. Um, Now, look, I know there are some people who are in situations where they might need uh, some relief from their student loans, but Five million people? Come on. That's ridiculous. I want to tell you one last thing because I'm running out of time and I'm on my soapbox, but, um, the, here's the, here's the kicker of this. The the, you know, Congress never appropriated the money for this. Okay. They never appropriated any money for the student loan forgiveness. And it's Congress that's in charge of spending the money. And then the Supreme Court said, you cannot do this, Joe Biden. The Supreme Court of the United States said, Joe Biden, you do not have the authority to forgive these loans. And you know what Biden said in his tweet this week? The Supreme Court cannot stop me. Huh? This is a guy who says that Donald Trump is a a danger to our democracy, and he's defying Congress and the Supreme Court? He should go to jail. I'm Steve Moore. This is the More Money Show. We'll be right back. This is More Money with economist Steve Moore. Now, Steve Moore. 
Honey Show. I'm your host, Stephen Moore, and um, thanks again for joining. If you weren't listening earlier, we're excited to announce uh, that we will be going extending the More Money Show to two hours a week. Uh, thanks to my good friend, John Katsamatidis, who, who is the owner and uh, CEO of this great station. So I'm excited about that. We'll be on from one to three. I think that will start in two weeks. I'm not exactly sure when the start date is, but coming up soon. Uh, now I have on the phone uh, John Fund, who uh, works with me at the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. He is my uh, political guy and one of the smartest political minds in America. He worked for over two decades as the political um um, analyst at the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and uh, the editorial page obviously is a must-read. John, uh, thanks for joining. Pleasure. Exciting times at CPAC, where I know you <laughs> spoke to this morning. Thank you. And then I don't know if we have – we're going to have Jonathan Williams on as well. Is Jonathan with us yet? I guess not. So, John, I'm going to start yep, with Jonathan you. here, yep. Oh, hey, Jonathan, good. Thanks for joining. Jonathan Williams is the chief economist with ALEC. Uh, If you don't know ALEC, they're an indispensable organization that represents several thousand state legislators around the country that are conservative-oriented, free market-oriented, believe in freedom, believe in federalism, believe in states' rights. And Jonathan is one of the smartest guys around in terms of what's happening in the states. So, Jonathan, thanks for joining. John Fund, I would like to start with you. This is hot, a hot story. Uh, you may have seen at CPAC this morning that I attacked the AARP, uh, and that is a group that uh, is supposedly representing senior citizens, but I'm saying that they represent health insurance companies and they represent uh, – you know, their own interests, not the interests of seniors. And I have been attacked by the Biden-Harris campaign, John Fund. They're saying Stephen Moore says that uh, ARP is a bad organization. And uh, he, he says that, oh, Steve Moore wants to cut Social Security and Medicare, blah, blah, blah. So, John, you have been following this organization for probably 30 years. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't think the ARP really represents the interests of seniors. What say you? AARP was founded in the 1940s by a retired school teacher who wanted to make sure that elderly people were as self-sufficient as possible, as well-informed about saving for retirement as possible, and that they weren't going to be dependent on the measly Social Security checks the government was promising them. Mm-hmm. It has morphed into a giant medical industrial complex that sells everything from vitamins to Medicare Advantage plans. And there is nothing about AARP that is different from any other profit-making organization, except they have an IRS slip of paper claiming they are nonprofit. Great point. You know, that how in the world is this a nonprofit organization? John, you're exactly right. And you know, they, I don't know if you are aware of this, John, but uh, we've reported on, on this at, at the Committee on Unleashed Prosperity in our hotline. They get a billion dollars a year from United Health. Now, come on, how is that? Uh, that sounds like they're an uh, they're a functionary of the United Health, which, by the way, is one of the largest health insurance companies in America. And by the way, Steve, full confession here: I am now sixty-five years old. I'm uh-huh. on Medicare. The yep. only Medicare Advantage plan available to me in New York State is a United Healthcare plan. So I have to have an AARP plan unless I want to go to traditional Medicare. 
Uh, That's because they've monopolized it. Monopoly in many states. They do. They do. Uh, Jonathan Williams, thanks for joining. I want to get into some of the state issues. I don't know if you have anything to add about this ARP issue, but it's a hot thing. I mean, I've been attacked by the uh, Biden uh, campaign. But um, also a big story this week that really kind of breaks my heart, Jonathan, because you and I worked hard to try to get so many states to become right to work states and right to work means that you can join a union if you want to. Uh, and there's, it doesn't outlaw unions. It just basically says that the, that you can't be forced to join a union. That seems to be a, a pretty uh, fundamental worker, right? Unfortunately, states like New York and New Jersey are not right to work states. We won in Michigan. We turned Michigan, the cradle of unionism into a right to work state, but I just got an email from you this morning saying that Michigan now has reversed course and they are returning to requiring workers in Michigan to join the union. But it really is a travesty, Stephen. You know, it's my home state in Michigan, so it's especially personal to me. But, you know, right to work, this is just fundamentally American idea that we ought to be able to associate with whom we would like, right? I mean, as, as individuals, as workers, certainly as, uh, as businesses across the United States. Uh, and this is not just good for individuals, right? And just from a freedom of association perspective, that you yes. have to have the dignity, whether you'd like to join something or not. Uh, it, it's actually, as we found, as you know, Steve, in our book, Rich States, Poor States, every yeah. year, uh, it matters greatly for economic growth and job creation. And the yep. states that are right to work states are some of the fastest growing states in America. So this is a really bad deal for Michigan. Uh, and it's unfortunately part of a longer series of mistakes by current liberal governor Gretchen Whitmer, who I think is auditioning perhaps for some sort of a national liberal uh, platform. Uh, but it's going to have disastrous effects for Michigan. It's a great point, uh, Jonathan. And just one, I wanted to add one thing to that and get your reaction, which is that, and, and John Fund, I'd like your reaction to this as well, that, um, you know, if you look at what's happened to the auto industry over the last three decades or so, you know, we're not losing auto jobs in America. We're just, it's just Michigan is losing auto jobs because a lot of those jobs, the, the plants that used to be in places like Dearborn, Michigan have moved to Texas have moved to Florida, Alabama, uh, South Carolina, states that are not forced union states. And so uh, it, it seems like this is going to be a blow to the auto jobs in the state of Michigan. Well, no yes. doubt it will. I mean, this is going to be clearly a problem for Michigan for the jobs and for population. And this is something that Governor Whitmer right now has a council put together to say growing Michigan together to try to ways to grow Michigan's population and keep young workers in the state. This does exactly the opposite of that yeah. because that's exactly right. Look at Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, those states that have you know, lower taxes plus right to work is the magic formula for population growth and especially with auto jobs recently. Yeah, we found John Fund that in our in the report that Jonathan Williams was just talking about that that's called rich states poor states. By the way, people can get that online, can't they, Jonathan? That's right, richstatespoorstates.org and alec.org you can get a free copy. So you'll see where your state ranks and Michigan had been moving up, right, Jonathan, and now they're going to probably slide down in terms of their competitiveness. 
Well, that's right. And when we started the publication, Michigan ranked 50th dead last. I mean, we were in a single state recession and then Governor Rick Snyder and real uh, reformers in the Michigan legislature were elected in 2010 and and turned that state around. And uh, unfortunately, not all victories are permanent and uh, and hopefully not all defeats are either after we founded it with this right to work uh, law. Yeah. So, John Fund, we found in our report that um, right to work states create about twice as many new jobs as uh, as non-right-to-work states. What do you make of that? Well, my slight disagreement with Jonathan is this. Uh, I think that this is obviously bad economically for Michigan. Politically, though, it's like a corpse twitching, you know, just as <laughs> right, right. Uh, right. after after it's expired. Union membership is in long-term decline. As a percentage yes. of the workforce, it yes. is, it's now at a record low. Yes. And Non-union jobs are growing far faster than union jobs. That's true. Because employers know to keep labor in this tight job market, uh, they're going to have to provide benefits and salary that are commensurate. The union jobs did strangle, as Jonathan said, the auto industry because they weighed them down with rules, regulations, and costs. And the Japanese and the South Koreans and even the Germans for a long time ate our lunch. And that's why so many Americans are now running around in foreign cars because the our car companies with bad planning and union, regula- and union regs put price themselves out of the market. I'm going to be taking callers in about uh, 15 minutes or so. And the, the issue of the day that I want to hear from our uh, listeners from is, do you think, what do you think about right to work laws? Do you think New York is, you know, John Fund, as you know, we're, we reach an audience in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, uh, and other states in the Northeast. And most of them are right, are enforced union states. And I believe, John, that that's one of the things that's really caused the demise of the Northeast. I mean, if you look at this amazing statistic that the Southeast of America today for the first time in history is producing more output than the Northeast. Yes. And by the way, despite this reversal in Michigan, I want to remind everyone in the audience that because of a Supreme Court decision a few years ago, if you're working in the public sector, you no longer have to pay union dues to subsidize politics that you disagree with. And all over the country, whether it's Wisconsin or whether it's Pennsylvania or whether it's even New York, hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. public sector union members are getting a pay raise. How are they getting the pay raise? They're taking the 1000 or $1,200 a year that the unions demand in their dues and saying, no, I'm not paying it because it all goes to politics. It doesn't go to represent me. That's John Fund, who is a political reporter with National Review. He spent 20, more than 20, maybe 30 years with the Wall Street Journal uh, and also works with the Committee to Unleash Prosperity for our hotline. Uh, Jonathan, uh, let's just switch gears for a minute. And can you give our um, listeners a little update on what is going on with, with what I think is maybe the most important issue of our time, which is school choice, allowing parents to choose their own kids for their schools. And uh, we've got a lot of, I think, how many states did we get last year to enact school choice measures, Jonathan? 
Well, it's really in a magic moment for parents and parental empowerment and, and kids because, I mean, we saw you know nearly 10 states last year go to wow. universal school choice plans. And up until a few years ago, we really had the, uh, the starting plans in, in Wisconsin and Milwaukee that started back in the 90s. And, of course, we had Florida and Arizona and a couple of states that have done some great things on school choice. But outside of those states, uh, we really didn't see much. And then, of course, what happened was COVID. And uh, parents uh, looked yeah. over their kids' uh, laptops, and they were learning online. They were wondering what in the world they're being taught in many cases. And then you had uh, people like down here in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, running for governor against Glenn Youngkin, said, you know, parents shouldn't be involved in their kids' education. <laughs> right. And that incensed right. people. Republicans, Democrats, independents were incensed by that idea. And so I think that was the predicate to start this really magic the moment in education freedom that we're seeing. And of course, Alec and Committee to Unleash Prosperity yeah. have been instrumental in working with state legislators yep. uh, and all of the, the friendly education reform groups around the country. Because, I mean, we think that we can have 25 states, half of America, uh, with education freedom by the end of 2025 mm -hmm. because of this huge momentum that these Alec legislators are really moving across the states on this. It's just a central so, issue. Yeah. John Fund, um, so I think a lot of people who are, who are learning about school choice might might believe what the teachers unions say, John, which is that this is going to if we give parents money to send their kids to alternative schools, that this will hurt the public schools. What do you say about that, John? Well, first of all, the money that goes to charter schools or to parents who are going to put kids into schools of their own choice. Mm -hmm. is a fraction of what the public schools get right now. That's true. That's basis. true. So in, in actual practice, the public schools, if someone leaves them and goes to an alternative school, the public school gets more money. Right. So how much good have they done with that in the last right. 30 years? We have doubled in real terms. Beyond yes. inflation, in real terms, yes. we have doubled the expenditure on public yes. education, and we are getting fewer good results not more. So Jonathan, uh, as I look at some of these programs and I've been to a lot of these charter schools and, uh, sometimes the money goes to Catholic schools or Jewish schools or Montessori schools, you know, it's just amazing to see the performance of the kids in these classrooms, you know, when you have discipline and when you have real high standards and, and basically a classical curriculum. And isn't it true, Jonathan? Cause when I go to these schools, it's a lot of Hispanic kids, black kids, uh, you know, kids with low incomes. Uh, it seems to me that Democrats should be, you know, should be in favor of this if they care about these kids of color. Well, absolutely. And I think uh, to some extent, I mean, that's such a good point. But to some extent, Democrats, when you look at polling, are very supportive, the rank-and-file Democrats, especially within inner cities, whereas you've reported, Steve, in our Education Freedom Alliance that we're all members yeah. of, pushing this idea of education freedom. Uh, have, you've reported that, you know, look at Baltimore, look at New York City, look at Detroit, back home in Michigan. Uh, they're spending more than 30000 maybe 35000 yeah. per year per child and getting zero actually at grade level at, in some cases at reading and math. So the idea of just teaching kids basic reading, writing and math and American history and some basic ideas, yep. I mean, is revolutionary in these charter programs and these religious uh, programs to, to John's point at a fraction of the cost of public education and yet seeing the yep. results. This is something that has the ability to blow apart 
bipartisan lines. I mean, the only vested interest group, you talked about, you know, AARP earlier. I mean, it's the teachers unions when it yeah, comes to right. fighting to keep these kids in failing schools in many cases. And that's the that, travesty yeah. of it. That's John, Jonathan Williams, who is the uh, chief economist. Hold on, John, uh, chief economist with uh, Alec, and is uh, working with us on the school choice issue. Alec is an indispensable organization, and I want to just clarify one thing because I misspoke when I said Democrats are opposed to this. Jonathan, you you made a good point. Democratic voters are in favor of this. It's the Democratic politicians, John Fund, who are basically in the hip pocket, unfortunately, of the teachers' unions. Well. There's also one other point. In inner cities where our schools are the worst and where minority kids are failing, and, of course, if minority kids don't get a good education, they often are prey to criminal behavior and, you know, wasting their lives. Uh, It's a tragedy. Forty percent, Steve, of inner city public school teachers in city after city, Chicago, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, they send their kids to non-public schools. What yep. do they know that the rest of us don't? Yeah. They know the schools don't work. They won't even yep. send their own kids there. That's John Fund, uh, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, now with the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and Jonathan Williams, uh, who is with Alec. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Great stuff today. Folks, we'll be right back. I will take your calls, 1-800-848-9222. Uh, that's the More Money Hotline, 1-800-848-WABC. I'd like your calls dealing with one of two issues. What do you think about uh, what's going on with uh, right to work? Should New York and New Jersey become a right to work state? And the other issue I want to ask you about is these student loans. And should the, should the taxpayer be bailing out uh, deadbeats who are not paying their student loans back? We'll be right back. This is the More Money Show on WABC. It's more money with leading economist Steve Moore. Now, here's your host, Steve Moore. Welcome back, folks. This is the More Money Show. We are going to get right to your calls. Uh, remember the two issues that I want to talk about with you and hear from you on. Number one, do you think it's fair the taxpayers should pay for student loans that, that the students will agree to pay, but won't pay themselves? And number two, do you think that, uh, we should have right to work laws where people should not be forced to join unions because New York is not a, a right to work state, nor is New Jersey. So let's go to our first caller, Tony. Thanks for joining. What have you got for us? Hi, Steve. I just want to tell you, we're very proud of you at CPAC. Hip, hip, hooray. You're the best. Thank you. Did you see um, I got attacked? I got attacked by the Biden administration. <laughs> yes, that's a good thing. That's always a good thing. That's a plus. <laughs> okay. I'm going to wear that, Tony, as a badge of honor. We love you, Steve. So, number one, student loans is a disgrace, and it shows you how in contempt of his own uh, Supreme Court our president is. He is a drag. He should be locked up. And so I don't approve of all these student loans. Students should pay for their own loans. That's number one. You got it. Okay, Tony, thank you. I got five or more people on the guest. I got to move on. Great call. Uh, Let's move on to Mark. We got Mark. If not, we I think we have Peter. Oh, is this Mark? Yes. Mark, what do you got for us? Okay, right to it. Where does a state, a state, get the authority? Where does it originate from to make a corporation or a worker join a union or not join a union? Where in state constitutions does that uh, originate? 
That's a How great question. It? You know, it's it uh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. No. It's a really good question. Thanks for calling, Mark. How how can the state have the authority to tell a private company whether they have to have union members or not? And again, by the way, folks, I'm not against unions. I know a lot of my listeners are union members, and that's fine. If you want to voluntarily join the union and pay the dues and get whatever benefits you get from them, that that's a free country. I believe in that. I believe in the First Amendment right of association. What I'm saying is that you can't force someone against their will to pay union dues for oftentimes for political views that you don't agree with. Um, I just think that's stealing from people's paychecks. And I'm not saying that unions don't provide benefits. They do provide benefits, but it should be up to the individual worker, in my opinion, and my humble opinion, that should make that decision, not the state. And if you want to work at a construction site, uh, and you want to be under the union rules, that's fine. And if you don't, you should be allowed not to. This is a free country the last time I checked. Okay, Mr. Producer, who is next? Let's go to Steve in Huntington. Steve, thanks for calling. Hey, Steve, thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to chime in. You were talking before about the AARP. Yes, yes. And I just want to let you know that your your listening audience has other alternatives there, other options. Yes. And one is a conservative group called AMAC, the Association of Mature yes. Citizens. Yes. You know, and they, they do advertise on your on uh, your your uh, channel there, ABC. Right. I hear Mark Levin. But yes. they're advocates of Social Security and, and, and yes. Medicare and all that. They're, they're working for us conservatives yes. related to those areas. So it's a great organization, and I highly recommend your listening audience to look into them because they great, do great have point. another alternative, they, another option. Mm-hmm. You know what? I meant to say that earlier and I forgot to. So I'm so glad you called in. Really great point, folks. You don't, if you want some organization that represents your interests as a senior citizen, you don't have to join the ARP. You can join AMAC and AMAC is a great group. There's another group called, I think, 60 plus. And these are groups. Look, when you give money to uh, AARP, you're basically giving that money to the Democratic Party because they are a functionary of the liberal left. And that's why I think it's a great thing. You got groups like AMAC that will represent your financial interests and your political interests. Great, great call. By the way, we've got time for a few more callers. That number again, 1-800-848-9222. I'm asking about two questions. Do you think it's constitutional for uh, Joe Biden to forgive people for their student loan debt. And second of all, what about right to work? Don't you think that New York and New Jersey should allow workers to decide for themselves whether they want to join the union? Okay, Mr. Producer, who is our next caller? Let's go to Pete in Princeton. Pete, thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Uh, first time caller. Uh, we all know about the, uh, the, the national debt. We all know about the interest that we pay yeah. on the debt. My yep. question, I've wanted to know this for a long time, at what year did this country first borrow money? I mean, who authorized that under what administration to get us into this? I mean, looking back, yeah. and I wonder if you have the answer. I do. Great call. Thank you, sir. I'm glad you're a first-time caller. I love first-time callers, and thanks for listening. So uh, the quick uh, story here, I've written a book about this, by the way, called Govzilla. Uh, and you can get it, I think it's nine ninety five. Uh, you can go to Amazon and it's, it's a, just a hundred page book, but it really explains the history of how we got into this crisis of red ink, this, this, this 
tsunami of borrowing that is destroying our country. And it turns out, look, we we started borrowing at the first years of our country. We borrowed to finance the Revolutionary War, for goodness sakes. Uh, and, of course, it was uh, – Alexander Hamilton, who said that the, the debt of the United States shall be honored. And so we, we, we do pay back our debt. That's why we have the lowest interest rates. But what's really interesting about U.S. history, and I'm going to get on my soapbox again here and explain this to folks because it's so important that you understand what's going on. So when we've had crises at, and, and wars and pandemics and depressions in this country, we've borrowed money. You know, during tough times, you have to borrow money. Um, but here's what's so interesting. If you look back at the Revolutionary War, we borrowed a lot of money. And then when the war was over, guess what? We started to pay down the debt. That's like a family would do that. If you had to borrow a lot of money during a tough time, then when times are good, you pay it down. And then we had the Civil War. And we borrowed a whole lot of money during the Civil War to uh, win, uh, to uh, to free the slaves. And when that war was over, what happened in the next 30 years? We st- we paid down down the debt. And then we had World War One, and we borrowed a lot of money. By the way, I don't think we should have ever been in World War One, but that's another subject. But then when World War One was over, guess what? We brought the debt down. Then, of course, we had the Great Depression in the 1930s. And what happened was we borrowed a lot of money, too much money, in my opinion, under, under Franklin Roosevelt. But when, when, the Rose, when that was over, guess what? We borrowed, uh, I mean, we paid down the debt when World War Two was over. In other words, that we borrowed $5 trillion during the World War II. We paid it down. And here's my point, folks. This is the first time in American history where we are, the crisis is over. COVID ended two, two or three years ago. And yet we're borrowing one and a half to $2 trillion a year during a recovery. That makes no sense. This is a financially reckless president we have right now. He is doing something we've never done before in history. Borrowed this level of money at a time. He says, Oh, the economy is doing great right now. Okay. If the economy is doing great, why, Mr. President, are you borrowing $1.5 trillion a year? This has to stop or we're going to bankrupt this great country of ours. Folks, this is the more money show and we will be right back. So Bob, Chris, Courtney, when it comes to the thousand or so families that we manage here, paying capital management, helping with other wealth decisions, you know, it's really been trial and error over many, many years. And back in the dark ages or the late seventies, early eighties, you know, Bob, you came up with a lot of philosophies. Um, and a lot of ways of doing things that we still do today. So I thought I would hit you guys with a couple statements and you can tell me, does this fit into our philosophy or no way? This doesn't fit into the pain capital philosophy at all or a Bobism as we like to call it here, <laughs> pain capital. And the first one is you should always pay off your house as soon as you can. Yay or nay? Well, I'm going to say nay to that, Rye, simply because of anecdotal evidence I have from my good buddies at a divorce attorney in the Philadelphia area, that more marriages have been saved by the mortgage than ever in the history of his career. No one wants to sell their home. They get rid of the 2.5% mortgage, so they're they're getting together and they're not getting divorced. So it's uh, if that keep if that keeps couples happy, I'm all for it, buddy. Marriage Advice for Longevity by Bob Payne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not sure if it's good advice or not. Well, uh, the, the jury's still out. Why'd you stay together for so long? The mortgage. That's it. <laughs> That's it. But yeah, but you what, a lot of people do not want to sell their home right now because they have a, a low interest rate. But you know, when it comes to debt, debt's an emotional thing. It's just like investing in anything. 
you know, we, we base it on our emotions. And if you can't sleep at it, I don't care how low the interest rate is on a mortgage or any debt you have. If you can't sleep at night, I always say, sell it down to the sleeping point. Get to the point, pay it off, all of it or some of it, because sleep is more important than uh, making a smart financial decision on debt. Yeah, well said, Bob. So here's one I think I know the answer to. I'm going to throw this one to Courtney. Individual bonds are better than bond funds. Do you agree or disagree? I'm sure any of our regular listeners will know our answer to this. We do not like bond funds. We have never liked bond funds. We will never like bond funds. Uh, but the problem is with interest rates go up and bond prices can go down. This is what all everybody saw in 2022 that happened. But if you have an individual bond, it doesn't matter so much because you can say, well, I'm just going to wait for that bond to mature. So if I know it's maturing in five years from now. I know I'm going to get my money back and I'm going to keep getting interest between now and then. With a bond fund, Rates go up, your bond price goes down. There's no maturity date on that. So that can fluctuate a lot like a stock fund can. And there's no assurance that, okay, I know at a certain date what the price is going to be in the future. What's even worse is we were talking about how investors aren't always extremely rational. So what happens is when the price goes down on a bond, you get a lot of people say, oh, I want to sell that thing that's not doing well, which puts more selling pressure and can make it go down further. So you can actually tend to have more volatility with a bond fund than you can an individual bond. So if you're going to own bonds and they have a very important place in your portfolio, you want to physically own a bond outright. Do not own a bond fund. Yeah, think of a bond fund as the Trojan horse of the bond world. They're called bonds. They're marketed like bonds, but they don't act like bonds because, according to his point, they have equity-like volatility. There's no set rate of interest, and they don't come due. All right. We know where you guys stand on that. Um, <laughs> no bond funds here at Payne Capital Management. The other one that we get questions on all the time are annuities or ripoffs or is it the greatest thing since sliced bread to get consistent income for life? How do you guys feel about that? I think we can all agree. Big ripoff. Well, I would say it depends on the situation, but we've analyzed a lot of annuities in our day. And what we found is, for the most part, you're probably better off investing the money on your own than giving it to an insurance company who tends to make out better in the deal. I know that sounds shocking, but with all the anecdotal evidence that we have, that's usually the case. Well, you know, guys, I tell you what, from my experience, um, we have an annuity expert at our firm, Angelique, you guys all know well. And I'm just amazed at how you get her in front of an annuity salesperson, how she runs circles around these because they don't understand the product they're selling. <laughs> it's, it's pretty surprising. And these things are so complex. I can understand why they don't understand them. Well, and a lot of times, too, it's like, okay, we take your principal, you don't get it back, and we pay you out slowly over time, and they give you all these great rates, like 6 7% on their quote-unquote phantom value. But anything's called a phantom value, <laughs> that's not a real value. And what ends up happening is they're just paying your money back with a smaller amount of return over time, and they're playing the actuarial table. You know, the sales pitch sounds so good. Then you feel empty later, like Chinese food. It tastes so good going down, but you feel so empty later. I think that's exactly what it's like when most of you buy an annuity, because every time we unwind one of these, it's like, it sounded like a good idea. I don't really understand how it works. Maybe I shouldn't be in this. And a lot of times that's definitely the case. Or it's like getting money back after your taxes. You know, you're excited when you get it, but when you find out it was your money in the first place. <laughs> I like that, Chris. Well, another uh, agree or disagree, a statement that I'll make. Uh, that you get to agree or disagree with is it's better to have a fee-based advisor or an old-school commission broker. Chris, I feel like uh, you're on the side of those old-school commission brokers. Am I wrong or right? 
you know, I miss the heady days of just trading stocks and making commissions, right? You know, you really earned your dollar in those days. But no, I, I, uh, I would definitely say, uh, the better situation is a fee based advisor. Um, you know, that, that way, like in paying capital management, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility. That means we have to do what's in the best interest of our clients. That also means that we have a vested interest in their success, their financial plan. And we're picking, we're picking the investment products that best suit their needs and their ability to achieve their goals. The other thing I find surprising about the financial services industry is nothing surprises me. Years ago, after the 2008 crash, a good friend of mine brought his, his father to me and it as, as a stockbroker. It was a commission broker, had him 100% in the stock market regardless of the fact that he was 75 years old living on a fixed income because the broker didn't believe in, in bonds. And his explanation was, well, Warren Buffett doesn't invest in bonds. <laughs> What's that got to do, you know, with your client? And that's the problem with a commissioned salesperson is they can do whatever they want. They're, they're, they're basically not accountable to you as the investor, as a fiduciary is. So, you know, they're registered representatives of the company. And the problem is when you run into an issue, they take the side of the company. They don't take your side as the investor. So, you know, I will, uh, if I had to hire a fee-based advisor, I'd hire you guys because, you know, you have to put my interest first and invest my money like it's your own. That's a very comforting thought for me. The other one amazes me now is, you know, we think a lot about tax efficiency. Why would anyone own a mutual fund when you can own an ETF nowadays, an exchange-traded fund where the tax implications are just so much better with an exchange-traded fund? Yeah, and actually, I find a lot of people don't realize this. So ETFs are typically a lower cost than a mutual fund, which is one easy reason that you want to be in an ETF as opposed to a mutual fund. Um, cause they're very similar products, right? Like if you want to own the S&P 500, you can own a mutual fund that owns the S&P 500 or an ETF that owns the S&P 500. But the ETF not only tends to be cheaper, but it's more tax efficient. The reason being is they have to distribute capital gains every year in a mutual fund. And this has actually happened. We've seen this in years where the stock markets are down. But at some point in that year, the mutual fund did have to sell holdings within it. And so it has to send out capital gains distributions to you. So you're paying taxes on capital gains in a year where your fund actually went down. Whereas an ETF, you're only paying capital gains in the year where you individually sell your shares of that ETF. So you can decide in which years you're paying your capital gains, how much you want to pay, and you can be a lot more strategic about it. So that's why an ETF is a much better tax strategy than a mutual fund. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement, Myself and Bob and our team at Pain Capital will run for you our total financial master plan and we'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We literally look at everything. There's not a firm out there that will do this work up front. We go as far as building you, your own personalized financial portal. We give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life and we'll hone in on every financial issue you need to address today, whether it's that income plan for retirement. How do you take Social Security? There's a lot of ways to take it, but one run right way for you how do you draw from your portfolio the most tax-efficient way? We'll give you a full income plan, factor in inflation, so you don't run out of money. We're going to look at diversification. Markets have been all over the place, up and down. Has your portfolio been extremely volatile? Or have you been sitting in cash? Paralysis by analysis, can't figure out what to do. We'll put together a full diversified investment game plan, show you how to grow your wealth, tie to your goals, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life, and we're going to look at fees and taxes. Wall Street loves to sell you high cost, tax inefficient products, whether it's an annuity, mutual fund, insurance product, brokerage product. We're going to go through every investment you have, deep dive. We're going to show you how to reduce all the internal costs. 
and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's now what you make. It's what you take. You'll get our full tax playbook. We literally have four slots left. If you saved over a million dollars for your retirement, all you need to do is call or text at 844-752-6692. That's 844-752-6692. If you call or text us right now at 844-752-6692, that's 844-PLAN-NYC, 844-PLAN-NYC.